0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 18th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
2: Good evening, folks.
1: Bob, welcome back from L.A. How did things go out there?
2: Fantastic. I was at uh, the Logical L.A. conference. This is the first year they, that, that this has happened. Uh, Bruce Gleason pulled it together. It, I had a ton of fun. You know, it was the first year, so it was kind of small. I think they sold between 150 and uh, 200 uh, tickets. Uh, but there were some great speakers. Uh, Eugenie Scott, Elizabeth Loftus, Shelley Long sang. She's wonderful. Sean Carroll, uh Whose talk produced two epiphanies in me? It's <gasps> wonderful. <laughs> what? Uh, what? I Seth, want to know. Seth Andrews, jo- Joe Nickel, Brian Dunning. It had to do with uh, with, with entropy and complexity. It was just uh, um. fascinating shit. I want to thank uh, my good and generous friend Ron Blond for actually getting me out there. I'm hoping that uh, they can uh, pull together another another one next year in L.A. I think uh, if they keep it in the January timeframe, January February, I think that would be you know it's kind of that's kind of open. Right, mm-hmm. uh, for for skeptical conferences,
3: and it's good for people coming to L.A. because even though it's quote unquote cold here, like it's you know it's winter, but our winter is like sixty five.
2: Yeah, you know? I had uh, so yeah, for a lot was, of people,
3: it's a good you know respite to get away from the snow.
2: Yeah, yeah, I had a, I needed a light jacket Friday, but Saturday and Sunday was like you know no jacket necessary outside yeah. at all. It was Although like it's, it's been 70.
1: in the fifties here in Connecticut. This mm. Yeah. I was kind of bummed that
2: it was actually kind of warmish when I left because I wanted it to be bitterly cold when I yeah. exited Connecticut. No.
1: <laughs> All right, well, welcome back. And, so, Boss, Bob, why don't you get us started with a forgotten superhero of science?
2: Yes, for this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I am talking about Dorothy Anderson, 1901 to 1963. She was an American doctor who was the first person to identify cystic fibrosis as a disease, and she was the first to describe it and her team uh, to diagnose it. So very important. She got her medical de- degree from Johns Hopkins University, uh, 1926, and uh, she was uh, denied a surgical res- residency at Strong Memorial Hospital in Rochester, New York. Because she had brown hair, oh no wait, no, that was because she was a woman, that was it that 's why that happened um, mm-hmm. so while being instructor of pathology at Columbia University, Anderson earned a doctorate and, uh, of medical sciences in one thousand nine hundred and thirty five so she did, uh, she, did, she was able to successfully complete all of her uh, all of her work, so she then became uh, basically one of the go to experts of infant cardiology. And uh, it was while doing an, uh, an autopsy on an infant that she noticed a lesion on the pancreas. And after an incredibly detailed search of autopsy records and medical uh, literature, she noticed a disease pattern that no one um, had noticed before. And it was very clear. So she kind of struck gold there, so to speak. She called it cystic fibrosis. Uh, she and her team eventually devised a method for diag- diagnosing it in, in living patients. And their simple diagnostic test is still being used today. So she got many awards, including the Distinguished Service Medal of Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in 63 and the Elizabeth Blackwell Award, uh, which is no relation to the infamous Stephen Blackwell. So remember Dorothy Anderson. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing transmembrane conductance regulators or mucus.
3: (laughs) Ah, Love it. Just mucus. (laughs) I got
2: some of that right now.
1: So do you know exactly what happens in patients with cystic fibrosis?
4: Absolutely not. Well, yeah,
1: not.
2: yeah. Their their lu- their lungs get incredibly infected. Mucus builds up. You gotta. They need there are things you could do, I guess, to loosen the mucus. But they don't. They like kind of like drown in their 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 mm. own
3: lungs. They have to kind of be beat on the back, right? When they're young, they're you're always having to kind of break up the mucus so they can try and cough it up. And do you know why mm. the mucus builds up? Is it do they have a cilia problem? Yes. Yeah. And that's they call it. it 65 roses, right? Like there's even a, an organization around it because so many young children – because you get diagnosed mm. when you're quite young. That's They can't pronounce cystic fibrosis, so they call it 65 roses. It's kind of sweet. Yeah.
1: That oh. yeah. is uh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, so the lungs can't clear the mucus because the little cilia that move it along don't form because it's a recessive genetic mutation. Right, and you, had, you need to be
2: missing both of them um. – for it to happen, yeah. if you have one, you're still you're still good, but uh, but you could carry it, it down, yeah, yeah, to your kids. Yeah, it's recessive. Yeah,
3: and that's probably uh, covered in twenty three and Me, right? I just I just sent in a twenty three and Me kit, yeah. and I'm yeah, really yeah. excited to get my results. It's funny, I did my twenty three and Me at the same time that I did a wisdom panel for my dog, and so I'm interested to see what my if you're related to your dog. <laughs>
0: I Absolutely. hope you sent the right sample to the right <laughs> I company. I <laughs> know. Uh,
3: no, but I, I can't wait to see, you know, what kind of breeds might be in him. I I feel like I've got to take that one more with a grain of salt. I'm not sure, but I'm definitely interested to see the outcome of both.
1: Yeah, well, let us know what, what kind yeah. of mutations you have, kind of horrible For mutations sure. are. For sure. Right <laughs> yeah. Most people are walking around with several, you know, recessive, horrible, yeah. recessive yeah. mutations. Why, what what do you mean?
4: Like all of us? <laughs> <laughs> everyone, we, everyone. Everyone. Yeah, one there's got to be team. at least
3: one or two. I think it's but, more than that. Because, like because if what? it's recessive, you don't know it. I mean, you're you,
0: exploding ha- heart syndrome, <laughs> uh, <laughs> collapse kidney syndrome.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, leaky brain syndrome. Leaky brain.
3: It also you also get to know about your um, genetic kind of your ancestry Heritage, through yeah. it. Yeah, and I've done I've done a genographic test before through National Geographic so I already know a lot about that but it's fascinating to look my boyfriend did 23 and me years ago and I urged him to log back in so I could <laughs> look through all of his data and he's like 96% Ashkenazi really? like he's like wow. pure cuzentite I know isn't that crazy it's really that, interesting. Huh? And when people, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't know that. I'm not sure if he even remembered. And especially for people that are very specific, um, have very specific ancestry, like somebody who's Ashkenazi, if they were interested in having a child, it is important to, to look see, out for Yeah, if they have Tay-Sachs or, or Kreutzfeldt-Jakob or any of those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's fascinating.
1: Tay-Sachs is a horrible disease. Talking about bad diseases. Mm -hmm. That's that's a conversation for another day. All right, Tara, tell us all about e-waste.
3: Yeah, this one's interesting to me. I came across a few articles that were trending this week about a spike in e-waste in Asia. I guess there was a United Nations University report that was recently released that looked at e-waste that was generated in East and Southeast Asia between 2010 and 2015. And, um, and yeah, they published that it's gone up 63% uh, across these kind of 12 countries, including China. But I think even more concerning than these numbers is sort of the global trend in an increase in e-waste. Because even though China puts out the most e-waste... What per is
2: e-waste?
3: Country. Ah, yes. Um, have you heard this term before? It's short for electronic waste. So it's sort of implied in the title and it's, it's a pretty loose definition. There's no real hard and fast parameters for what qualifies for e-waste. But generally speaking, it's things like cell phones and laptops and, um, cameras, TVs, yeah. printers, TVs. Yeah. Things that we think of as electronics. And there's some interesting stuff to know about e-waste. But before I get into the interesting stuff, I think it's important to know how much e-waste is out there. So yes, there's a huge trend. You know, it's it's increasing, especially in places like Southeast Asia and especially in places like China. But it seems like the reason for that is just because more and more individuals can afford electronics and the middle class is rising there Um and electronics are getting a lot cheaper. So if you compare it to America, for example, although China kind of by volume is putting out the most e-waste in the world per capita here in America, we put out three times as much. Um, and we have for a very long time. So really, this kind of 63% increase is only startling because there was a lower amount of e-waste being put out by China previously. So if we were to just take a, a narrow cross section and look at America, for example, we throw out roughly nine and a half million tons of e-waste every year. Um, if we look across the entire world – The UN is estimating that to be between 20 and 50 million metric tons of e-waste every single year. And you've got to think about the fact that electronics have a lot of stuff in them. A lot. they are a lot more than just plastic and and metal and glass. So there's mercury in um in the tubes that you find in some TVs. There's cadmium. There's lead. There are different phosphors. There's um arsenic and beryllium. And a lot of these are environmental toxins. And so when erased gets um put into a landfill and it gets broken or it gets burned, a lot of this can leach into the ground, into the groundwater, or go up into the atmosphere and people breathe it. Um, but here's the interesting thing. According to the EPA, for every one million cell phones that are thrown out, if we were to recycle them appropriately, we could recapture over 35,000 pounds of copper, over 750 pounds of silver, 75 pounds of gold, and 33 pounds of palladium. Just in the gold and silver alone, that's like $60 million worth of raw materials. But unfortunately, only about 12% of our e-waste in the U.S. is actually recycled. So as I'm – I know, it's it's just horrible. So as I'm reading about this, I realize that there was this investigation a few years ago that was a joint investigation between obviously kind of a motivated group called the uh, Basel Action Network, and I'll – kind of explain why it's called that because of the the Basel Treaty which we'll get to but um they did a a study called the E-trash Transparency Project and they did partner with MIT and what they did is they put 200 200- sort of um, GPS trackers on individual pieces of e-waste, and then they took them to recycling centers that touted themselves as being green or earth-friendly or environmentally responsible. And then they tracked what happened when they took these uh, pieces of e-waste to these places. Um, about a third of the devices ended up overseas, they ended up in places like China, Mexico, Thailand, Taiwan, Kenya. Most of them went to Hong Kong. It's a very common practice here in the States that we sell our trash, that we ship it out to developing nations. And even though the Basel Convention, which I mentioned, this was called the Basel Action Network, was developed – it started in, in 89, I think, and it actually was signed into um, – into action in ninety two, it prevents ha- hazardous waste from moving between nations, and it especially focuses on underdeveloped countries. The U S. is one of three nations, and only the the only developed nation who have signed it but have never ratified it. So we still ship our our um, garbage and specifically our e garbage all over the world, and unfortunately, you know the. The group, maybe the recycling firm that says, yes, we deal with this responsibly and they do all of their paperwork and they they take care of some of the recycling here in the States. They send some of it overseas. It's hard for them to follow the the chain. And so what often happens in these kind of big landfills overseas is that it just gets burned or it gets partially stripped and the rest of it just stays in the ground because unfortunately – it's very expensive to recycle electronics. It's very hard to do. It's time intensive. It requires a lot of manual labor. And oftentimes, even though there's a lot of value in kind of the precious metals and things like that that are found in them, it still doesn't um match how much it costs to recycle them. So what we're seeing now is that a lot of um, recycling firms are urging manufacturers to work with them on design so that they can think about how they would be recycled before they ever manufacture them. Um, I read across the board that like Apple, for example, unfortunately, is kind of notoriously one of the hardest products to recycle because part of what makes them so valuable to a consumer, like they're really lightweight, they have big glass screens, there's no visible screws, those kinds of things make them really hard to recycle.
1: But you know, you know what, Kara? It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to recycle them properly, but yes. if you're willing to recycle them in a very unsafe and environmentally unfriendly way, it is cost effective. And so what happens, and, and there's a good NPR investigation of this a couple of years ago. A lot of this e-waste, it goes to the countries that you mentioned, mm-hmm. and then they do get recycled. But in a very, in a a very toxic way. So you have people just like boiling electronics and trying to extract some of the minerals out of there. And meanwhile, they're breathing in tin fumes or whatever. It's really, really very, very poor. And unfortunately, as you said, the U.S., uh, they, you you could bypass a lot of the regulations that would otherwise might prevent this from happening because it's quote unquote recycling. And Yeah. yeah, someone said that recycling is like the secret password. And once you say that, Then you, it it bypasses a lot of regulations, but the, the end result
3: is horrible. It is. Um, and, and these are even at places that we think of as being responsible. These are places, like I said, based on that study, where they'll say things like, your green recycling center, this is, we do environmentally responsible recycling, but only up to a certain point. Yeah. Because the truth of the matter is most electronics are nearly 100% recyclable. Almost everything, if they're done the right way, can be stripped down, reused, taken apart. Um, but there are things that make it difficult. Adhesives make it really difficult. And so sometimes it's, just like you said, a lot of, um, individuals, especially in places where they don't have good safety regulations, like in Hong Kong, they will pull out the copper or they'll boil it down to get the, the metals that they need. And then they'll just burn the rest of it right. causing right, right. horrific toxic fumes. So it's, it's a tough situation we're in. It reminds me a lot of the recent conversation that we had about. Space junk, it reminds me a lot of the conversations we have over and over about um, climate change. One of those things where if we just think about it ahead of time, if we develop these things with the end result of the products in mind. The full life cycle, yes. Yes, we could we could come up with a better sustainable system for using them. And I guess a good piece of advice is if you have an old iPhone or you have an old laptop and it's no longer useful to you, but it still could be useful, there are plenty of places where you can donate it, where they can wipe it and actually still reuse them. So reusing something is the first key to recycling. Yeah, that's then the best that, thing to do yeah, is it's to refurbish
1: thing. it. Because And in, in the United States, like, you know what the average turnaround time for cell phone is in the U.S.?
0: Six months. Two
3: years. So, yeah, probably a year. No, it's Two years. 2 years, okay. two years. So on average people are swapping it's a little
1: that. bit faster for for iPhone users than for Android users but on average people are swapping getting a new phone in 2 years which mm-hmm. means that their the cell phone they they're ditching probably has a few years of useful life in it
3: Oh, sure. yeah. Probably many. Like, you know, you get rid of your iPhone 6 to get a 7. There are plenty of people who could use yeah. a 6. And, and not even – maybe you have an iPhone 2, but it's still functional. There are people in developing Two. nations who could definitely use that. You know what I mean? It's not just about your neighbors down the street. Also, I've read multiple accounts. I was – you know, I read a lot of different articles about this. Multiple different sources cited that there are more cell phones in the world than there are people, yeah, sure. which
4: is of course, awesome. crazy. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, I, I literally crazy. I have three right now. I have like exactly ones that I I did never I didn't have to return. Yeah, I just chuck them in a drawer.
3: That's for every person on the you know infants. Elderly people, people living in very poor conditions, cell phones are much easier to get a hold of. They're a part of the culture, even in um, developing nations now, because they're getting to be cheaper and easier to get a hold of. And so if you can reuse your devices, get as much life out of them as you can, and then think about the fact that other people can continue to get life out of them.
1: And there, there are apps where you can sell your slightly used electronics online to other people. Mm-hmm. There's ways, and they'll also... The big it's thing is that. don't dump your e-waste into the main garbage. Yeah, you stream. cannot. Oh do gosh,
0: that. The worst thing.
1: Yeah, to you do. cannot do that. Get it into you know an e-waste stream at the very least, and you know even then you know, it, you know the the system is not functioning as well as it should be. But if you want to do the extra homework, you could find ones that are certified, so at least there's a, a chance that they'll try to refurbish it first. You know they'll try to strip it here rather than have it being you know boiled in a third world country mm-hmm. somewhere. But it's, it is it is a problem. I agree. I think the long term, the solution is going to be designing electronics for their entire life cycle. There, yeah. you, you might, there may be some choices that manufacturers can make that will make them easier to recycle or less toxic when they end up at the end of their life. Yeah. Okay, Jay, you're going to tell us about some other future tech. This is an article
4: about IBM. Tell us what's going on. Well, did you guys know that Every year IBM issues five predictions of what technology we might have in five years.
3: Hmm. Okay.
4: Okay. So they've been doing it for a while now. I actually read through some of the older uh, predictions that they made. So I love this kind of speculation because first it's fun to see what pans out and what doesn't. You know, you look back on the predictions that they made and you're like, whoa, what were they thinking? But Steve likes to remind us that no one saw the internet coming, right? It's been the most influential technology on us, but it wasn't like this heavily predicted thing. Society wasn't prepared for it. So it, it is cool to think, okay, so let's say that one of these things does hit. You know, Turn it over in your head and see how it feels. Uh, let's get into some of them and then I'll ask you guys some questions about specifically what do you think about it how likely do you think this is to happen.
3: Okay, so these are things that this year for the next five years, not five years yeah. ago for this year. Okay. In
4: five years, in 2022... Gotcha that they think that we'll have these things or, you know, as close as they they describe them here. So using artificial intelligence to help diagnose a person's mental health. So intelligent AI computers uh, will be able to analyze a patient's speech patterns or writing, and they combine this with MRIs and EEGs to help conclude if the person has an underlying disease like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, PTSD. Uh, some type of neural developmental conditions such as autism or ADHD. Um, so, you know, the idea is that one, you know, these invisible signs that exist today will become, you know, much more visible in the future by them taking a aggregate data that they're collecting in these different ways, and they'll be, and you know, the computer will say this person might have an early, early, early sign of Parkinson's that a human just wouldn't be able to pick up on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, because none, none of those diseases are hard to diagnose, but it's, it's just a matter of how early, like how subtle a manifestation can you pick up. Alzheimer's I think is going to be tough because the thing about Alzheimer's, which is dementia, you just you know, your cognitive ability starts to slowly decline. Even when we know patients have some early signs of Alzheimer's, we don't – we won't really know that they have Alzheimer's until we see how they progress over time. Hmm. You know? So, because people could also have minimal cognitive impairment and be stable, or they could just have normal aging. You know what I mean, they, there's you don't know that it's Alzheimer's disease until it's, it's progressed to a certain point. So, it's almost an oxymoron to say that we're
3: going to diagnose it super early. But mental health things, I think, yeah, yeah I absolutely. Think so. Yeah, I think I so. Mean, We're already seeing little studies, like little snippets here and there that like based on cell phone habits, you can predict within a certain amount. or based. So once you have like a lot of this big data and it's really being analyzed appropriately, I think we could see um, signs of mental health in individuals who maybe aren't admitting it to themselves or don't have the education to know and who wouldn't go out of their way to see a mental health professional
4: know, they might find markers in blood or, or uh, you know, exhalation of breath or urine. You never know.
3: They're always looking for that. They're always looking for that. And genetic markers. Like I said, if once like the whole population does, you know, a genotyping thing like a 23andMe, like that's why I want to do it. I want to know if I have genetic markers for Alzheimer's so that if I sh- start to show the earliest signs, I can start taking Aricept or doing something before I wait. You know, I want to know, am I predisposed for this? It doesn't mean I'm going to get it, but I want to have my eye open to it. Some people don't want to know that. About I hate themselves. to tell you, those
1: drugs don't alter the course of the disease, so it I actually they slowed it a little bit. No, mm. no, 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 no. That's not not correct. So it actually doesn't. It actually doesn't matter. If How do you take they it work? Early. They just they'll they'll bump your cognitive function, but the the curve of your progression is unaltered.
3: Oh, that's uh, a huge bummer because I, I guess I was always under the wives' tale impression that they slowed the course, so you had to take them as early as possible.
1: Nope, it's not true for Alzheimer's. It is true, though, for something like ALS. ALS, you want to take it as early as possible because it does alter the slope. And so you think the more time you're on it, the more of a survival benefit you'll get out of the medications there. But the other ones, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, the ones they mentioned, there's no treatments that slow them down. Steve. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Why did they call Alzheimer's so damn close to old timers?
1: It's just a coincidence. It's stupid. It's
3: Alzheimer's I like the name it. of the guy. Yeah. Huh. I like it though. Name. I like that it sounds like old timers.
4: <laughs> it's just like you know, everybody <laughs> anybody who doesn't actually read the word is gonna think we're saying old timers, you know? I know Six it's like sixty five roses. Yeah, sixty five you know? roses. Thing. It's a
3: common mistake children make, and I think it's kind of sweet.
1: My favorite one of my favorite one of those before we go on is when uh, the kindergarten kids thought they all had headlights. Adorable. <laughs> 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 Go ahead, Jay.
4: All right. Hyper imaging and AI will give us superhuman vision.
1: Yeah. Baby. Like Jordi
4: LaForge? Yeah. So the idea here, you know, five Kinda. years, in five years, IBM thinks that we'll be using hyper imaging to, you know, the average person, right, can see beyond the visible spectrum. So you won't be able to see new colors, of course, because we can't. You know, we just physically can't. Your brain can't see, co- you know, colors um, that you already Haven't learned, right, Steve? You don't know that. You don't know that. Stop, stop. Don't you dare change my mind.
1: (laughs) So, first of all, the brain is plastic. And so far, it seems like the brain is really able to adapt to new kinds of inputs and outputs. But your eye can't see. You've heard the
3: prism glass experiments. You can make yourself have three arms, right? Your eye. It's your eye that can't see the colors. Right. Oh, like the rods and cones. Gotcha. Right. So what will happen is-
2: but what about the idea? Don't we have the machinery in our eyes to see ultraviolet light, But, or at least some wavelengths of it, but we can't because our lens yes, filters it Yes,
1: that's correct, out.
2: Bob. You're right.
1: That's correct. A little bit. We can see a little bit farther into the ultraviolet.
4: All right, so anyway, th- this device is going to uh, be able to see the, the uh, electromagnetic spectrum and then ter- turn that into something that we can see. Because you're not going to be peeling off the you know the outer layer of your eye or anything, Bob. Not yet. So so now check this out. So uh-huh. we have this device. Now they're saying they're going to be affordable. They're going to be portable, um, which means you know relatively accessible to the average person. Um, you know, 99.99% of the electromagnetic spectrum is invisible to us. So you know, there's things that are happening. You know, that are you know being expressed in these different wavelengths. So we use machines like medical imaging, the X-ray machines at airports. You know how uh, firefighters use this machine so they could see through smoke or, you know, being able to see through heavy fog. Stuff like that. It, m- it might come in very handy. It'll oh, really it's just come like in night- handy. Night vision goggles. You know? Right. You just would be able to see. A much larger spectrum with this device. You know, you have like a pair of glasses or you know a headset that can that can just show you all these different things. And then you're, you know, what are you going to be dialing it in? I just think this one's really cool. So I I thought though that this is going to go hand in hand with driverless cars without a doubt. Like put these in driverless cars so they can see everything that's coming. And one more comment. Imagine that we we all get these and we find out that there's these aliens living among us, you know?
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh my
2: god. They
4: live. Or like in Babylon 5, they're just like one click shifted to the left. They're there, but you can't see them or feel them. Phase shifted, right? Or or like
2: like Invader Zim who ordered special glasses so we could see all the bacteria and he freaked. Yes.
3: Oh, that episode is so gross.
4: Oh, oh, you're an Invader Zim fan? Oh, Kara. Okay, microscopes. And this is and the how, coolest one, and how they will help us understand earth complexity, right So this is really awesome, so again, IBM man they're saying five years there'll be machine mm-hmm. learning algorithms and software that'll help us pile drive through tons of information about the physical world around us, so they 'll be gathering and organizing these incredible amounts of data that' be collected by now this is the part that i 'm not too sure about billions of devices yeah to give us your smartphone. Well, I, I don't know. I was thinking more like nano type stuff. But all right, maybe like smartphones are collecting like you know discrete temperatures all in different areas of the world or whatever. Jade, you know.
1: there's already an app that that monitors earthquakes because of microquakes, the, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, because of the you know the vibration sensor in smartphones. So in five years, they're cool.
4: saying that we'll we'll have a much more defined understanding of the physical world because of these billions of devices it's scary you know, it's collating cool. the data you know collecting yeah. the data or understanding it rationalizing it making it so it's useful right because you don't just want to have the data you have to it has to be able to do something for us so okay very cool i hope i hope i hope but i'm not sure about this one you you might be i'm not i'm not too sure in 5 years
1: no hmm. oh, this is I just think so. this is big data and unstructured data ai and we we already have this that this is a pretty confident extrapolation you know, 5 years is always the tricky part and also like exactly what the apps are going to be how we're going to use it but definitely we're going to i think we're going to have that
4: ai is going to be everywhere people So we've all heard of this one. I'm I'm still confused why they're not here yet. But medical labs on a chip—they are here. Yeah, they are Uh, here already. Well, you know, I think they're they're just upping the uh, the ante here. Yeah, they're saying that it can trace diseases at the nanoscale. All right, that's that's you know, yeah, it's like a blood test. Very positive. So you know, new medical labs uh, that'll be on a a chip that can do all sorts of different things, tracking body you know bodily fluids. Um, do you have a reason to go to the doctor today? You know, there was some movie where somebody was peeing in the toilet. It was a book. They peed in the toilet. toilet's like you got to go to the doctor. You know, it's time. Not- yeah. Smart toilet. Yeah,
3: that's I like cool. That. I have a smart toilet, analyze but it doesn't your, analyze my pee. It just knows when to flush. Analyze your
0: waste, see what's going on in That's there. That's cool. You well, and talk yeah, to I've you.
3: seen some medical device Massage companies you. put together these little like units where you can do a blood draw, you can do a, a urine sample, you can do a breath sample, and it like yeah, it'll analyze it on point and then deliver the data to your to your physician.
1: But the, th- I have to say though that. The downside to that is that it overreports. It overreports over yeah. yeah. insignificant variations or findings, and then sure. we we end up having False unnecessary positives? follow-ups, unnecessary procedures, etc. And you know, so it, that thing has to be put into the context of evidence-based medicine. If it's it seems really sexy and exciting, but it could easily become a net negative if it's not used properly.
3: Yeah, it seems like what this – the real benefit of these kinds of devices, these labs on a chip, are doing quick, rapid screens for infectious diseases, for in, especially in developing areas. Yeah, to say yeah. Where, where
1: they have their greatest impact R&D. is in, in uh,
0: third-world
3: countries where yeah, I agree. big labs.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right, where there's nothing going mm-hmm. on, right?
4: And it's
3: like want we on. want to know immediately if you're testing positive for Ebola or for malaria so yeah. that we can get you the treatment you need.
4: And I wonder, you know, are we are we going to be wearing devices that will be m- monitoring our health at all times? You know, yeah, our impl- sure, I our implants, think so. I, implants. I mean, implants. Sure. we have yeah. people
3: who will have, I mean, Steve, this is a thing, right? Like if somebody has a heart attack, they might have some sort of monitor that gives updates to their doctor in the, in oh, the yeah. following weeks. Or And so it's already, and in that case, you know, that's something you need to see. You need to see where their blood pressure is, you know, for the next few weeks after the heart attack or something. So I think it's yeah, only pa- a matter of time. Pacemakers
1: already call, call your doctor, you know.
3: Absolutely. See, yeah. that's amazing. It's only a matter of time until healthy people have... We're wearing Fitbits.
4: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. you know? I got mine. Yeah. So this next one is a big whatever for me. The the idea that smart sensors are going to be able to, to de- detect environmental pollution really fast mm-hmm. and report on it really fast in small... I guess in very small doses as well. So you know, the, the example was that they put these sensors on a natural gas pipeline, mm-hmm. and if there's any detection, minute detection of gas, they would be able to... to you know, go and fix it before anything bad happens or a big spill happens or whatever in real time. All right. That's great. You know, yeah. why isn't this happening today? Yeah, I've been thinking yeah. about
1: that for years, honestly.
4: I think that yeah,
3: that's, that should be happening. That should be happening. Yeah.
4: All right. Real quick, guys. De- mm. December 2012, this was the IBM prediction. I'll give you a couple of predictions that they came up with. Uh, you'll be able to touch through your phone. So haptic feedback through your telephone. Nope, didn't happen. You know, I. Can't. Well, wait a minute. Didn't I just read about a like, kissing app with you? Well, that's not. Yeah, digital well, that, kissing. That's kissing? not what they're saying here. This is more <laughs> of like your. That's
1: the, haptic. Oh, you press your lips against the thing and I push it pushes. You know, Liptic.
3: Anyway,
4: Lip But <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can't touch people through your phone. That's not happening. It's fine that they screwed that up. Uh, they were saying that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jay, why is your phone in your pocket? Uh, <laughs> Glad to see you. Hiyo. <laughs> So anyway, you know these. I read through a bunch of them. They they, they pick some weird stuff over the years. You know they're hit, they're hit or miss. Um, I thought they're the array of things they picked this year were more little. They were more sane than other years.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think they're all five reasonable near predictions. Mm. Sure. All right, let's move on. Do you guys know who Eugene Cernan is? Gene Cernan?
0: Mm.
2: Didn't he build Cern? No. Uh, no, no he's a astronaut. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. last. The last human Ash, being on the moon, yeah. yes, to step yes, foot yes, on yes. yeah to be
1: on the moon he he just passed away. Oh, we talked about this with John Glenn. There was nothing safe about the missions that they went on. To you guys, but I thought we would use the opportunity to talk a little bit about why we haven't been back to the moon. And I'm going to start hmm. you off with a little well, bit of of, of moon trivia. Okay, Jay, you okay. fancy yourself an Apollo settle expert. down.
0: <laughs> he's in a, he's in a, an he's an Apollo file, yeah, An Apollo file, how many human
1: beings have stepped foot on the moon? Sixteen. Yeah, I was yeah, gonna it's say in seventeen. The, it's in it's the the Twelve, high twenties. Uh, Twelve. Bob is correct. Twelve. Twelve.
4: Bob looked it up.
0: <laughs> three people.
1: Three people have been there twice. Eugene Cernan was one of them. Okay. Uh, Apollo seventeen was the last mission. Cernan and Schmidt, Harris and Schmidt were the last two people to uh, step foot on the moon and
4: and look, admit to yourself as a listener of this show that most of you did not even hear those names before, and it's sad, yeah,
0: yeah,
3: oh,
4: it's, yeah it's true. that's
3: true. yeah, true.
1: it's true. The twelve people who've walked on the moon are Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Pete Conrad, Alan Bean, Alan Shepard, Edgar Mitchell, David Scott, James Irwin, John Young, Charles Duke, Eugene Cernan, and Harrison Schmitt. Don't forget. Yeah, Super you know Man. what's
3: missing from that list? What? <laughs> oh, A, vagina. Yeah. what? Yeah, right. A vagina. Yeah, right. Vagina. All white guys. Right? All men. All white or, men walked know. on the moon. Because we haven't gone back. It was the back. 60s exactly. and the 70s. We haven't I mean, gone back know, in like, so long. It's so so we'll be, just crazy. That we'll was we'll be 1972, back 72,
1: December 14th, 1972 is when I lifted off from the surface of the moon. So it has been 45 – this year will be 45 years. We're coming up on 50 years since we have been to the moon.
3: That all happened it's, at least a decade before I was born. That's crazy. crazy. Well, that
1: yeah. So 1972, I was eight so basically, at that point, that my entire life we had been going to the moon, the, you know, the my entire existence that I could remember, mm. you know, that it was basically I had lived through the Apollo era. Sure. Yep. Right. So this was talk about capturing you know your imagination as a kid. I mean, I thought you know if you had told me then, oh, in fifty years from now we still won't would will not have been back oh
2: to the moon. God. I we'd say probably would not believe full you full of crap. Never yeah, I, I, believed I mean. Him.
1: We 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 looked at the movie two thousand and one, a space odyssey. We're like yeah, that's probably pretty close. You know, we'll have a moon base and all that shit. Nothing, nothing. I remember
2: I remember reading mm. in the seventies. Um, it was a uh, Star Trek was getting was getting huge um you, and i remember reading so they they had lots of star trek manuals and books and things that were coming out this is well this is years before the first star trek movie and uh, i rem- i remember reading a timeline it was an extrapolation of uh, like nasa and space yeah. exploration that co- that led to the federation and star trek and if you looked at that now you'd be like oh my god this is so oh you know so overconfident yeah and if, if you know if they if they try if they follow the real timeline we would have been like what are you ridiculous give me a break here come on we much but that's how prediction goes you know you you, you know right. you over you know you overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term so while i was updating myself
1: on this issue I I did run across a very interesting point that I wanted to talk about. So first of all, the bottom line is that we don't have really the political will to invest what we would need to invest to get back to the moon. We, of course, can do it. But you know, we haven't been able to sustain investment in NASA in a in a lunar mission long enough to make it happen. Uh, the Constellation, you know, project was canned for lack of funding. Obama basically said NASA doesn't have the funding
2: to get to the moon. And remember, that was for that was for the Aries was it Aries, 5? Yeah, Aries five? Aries rocket. five rocket that was that had uh, more lifting capacity by many by tens of tons than uh, than Saturn five. So that would have mm-hmm. been a spectacular rocket. Saturn
1: five Saturn five had one hundred and eighty Metric tons of lift. Uh, The Ares Five was 188, so 70 metric tons more. That's why is that? That's the question. That's the thing that I really under uh, you know discovered with my recent readings. Why is that? Why was the Ares Five so much? Had 188 versus 118.
2: Well, you need because longer stays require more equipment. That's exactly right.
1: So the Apollo missions were flags and footprint missions, right? They would go there. They they were flags and footprint they were on the surface of the moon they did science right they did they did a lot of good things but they were there for 3 days so they brought enough food water oxygen and equipment for to do stuff and to live for 3 days on the moon if we want to to develop a permanent or semi-permanent infrastructure on the moon we would have to bring a lot more infrastructure there a lot more food water oxygen yeah. and equipment and so, shielding
2: that's shielding is important shielding. because yeah. because the ra- solar radiation cosmic radiation our astronauts were in many ways very lucky that they did not die because oh. any big oh. any big like solar event that happened in those 3 days they would have been they could have Death. been toast well it was, all, totally it was like toast. four
1: Four or five days there, three days at the moon, four or five days back. Right so in total, yeah. Like a, they were the, the missions were like twelve days, thirteen days, fourteen days. So, yeah. But they, they and they were short on purpose, mainly for that reason to limit their radiation exposure mm-hmm. and the risk that something would happen while they were out. Right. But if we're going to do longer missions, we need we need rockets that are bigger than the Saturn V. And the Saturn V was enormous. I know. If, I've it's, seen. Seen, you know, the one of the Saturn Fives. Yes,
2: uh, laid it was.
4: It, yeah. up close and personal. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's intimidating. I, yeah, I
2: saw it as well, and it was a religious experience, Aww. like seeing the set of the Star Trek, and and <laughs> like seeing like seeing David. This is only a, the statue of David. The only a yeah, few times that my jaw literally dropped, and it was it was amazing, spectacular. Yeah. And this would, and Ares would have to be bigger than this, right? But Ares got scrapped,
1: so. Uh, Now there's the space launch system, uh, which is going to start at 77 metric tons, so not even as big as the Saturn V. But but the system is designed so that they can upgrade it over time. Mm. And so as it evolves, when they get to, quote-unquote, block two – which is the size they'll have when they're actually sending stuff to the moon, will be 130 metric tons. So bigger than Saturn V, not as big as the Ares V, but hopefully big enough to get the job done. Now, NASA is not willing to commit to a very specific timeline or date, but what they're saying is that they hope to be able to be sending people to the moon in the First half of the twenty twenties, so we're still looking at ten years, basically. Mm. Uh,
4: moon base or what, Steve? Come on. Well,
1: they're not saying because they don't have the, they don't have the funding to commit to a very specific timetable or mission alpha. schedule.
0: Mm-hmm. Are, are in alpha. our is, are in our robotics catching up to the point where we don't have to send people say to the moon? I can understand why you send people to Mars. That's different, but to the moon to go back, I, wouldn't robots in ten years be able to really handle just about anything a human? Well, can Well, we use? are sending probes and stuff to
1: the moon. You know that we no, we are absolutely we. Can can do that. It's not about just sending something to the moon or to Mars or whatever. And this is, of course, the, the deep question, right? Do, should we bother to send people into space, or should we just let robots do everything? You know, and, and I don't want to get into that debate again. We've had that a few times on the show. My personal view is we need to colonize our solar system with people. You know, robots can can blaze the trail for us. Absolutely. They can do a lot of our yes. science much more cheaply and much more effectively. But I just think that we need to have people in space.
2: And not only that, the robots, I think, will at some point. It could take a little while to get there. But they could prepare the site for yeah. humans. Imagine landing I, and absolutely. strolling right into your habitat. That would be and nice. And a robot
1: butler comes up to you with like a bottle of champagne. Moon juice.
0: Good evening, sir. How how was your flight from the Quite well, quite well.
1: (laughs) Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Blue Apron.
3: Guys, I'm really excited that we got to partner with Blue Apron this week because it's the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country, and it's really, really good. What happens is you get to pick out what the meal that you want to have is, and then you get a box delivered to your door where every single ingredient is perfectly portioned. So there's no food waste whatsoever. There's these really Mm. beautiful full color instructions. So people like me who are terrible chefs, terrible in the kitchen, (laughs) can put everything together according to these super simple instructions. And then you have a beautiful, it really is like a chef inspired meal for dinner. And these are things that I would never think of on my own. It's and the food's delicious.
2: Some of the uh, featured upcoming meals include spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes and pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach and they also have mushroom and chipotle pepper enchilada with lime sour cream.
4: The thing that I'm liking is that they say how affordable it is. It says it's uh, for less than $10 per person per meal, which, wow, that's really good. That's better than going out to a restaurant, but, you know, you're cooking it fresh at home.
0: So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash SGU. That's blueapron.com SGU.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Bob, so yet again, I need to update my internal map of the universe. Tell me what I have to change. (sighs) Yes,
2: yes, you do. Uh, Astronomers have published a detailed galaxy survey, and they show that the observable universe has at least 2 trillion galaxies in it, 10 to 20 times more than previously believed, as we all have believed for many years if you... Kind of are into this type of stuff. So just when you think you know the observable universe, it goes and gets a little bit denser. So this is from the international team of astronomers led by Christopher Conselice, who is professor of astrophysics at the University of Nottingham. That's how his name has to be pronounced. I just love it. Con um, This is uh, published in the Astrophysical Journal very recently. Uh, you may have heard this news item a little while ago, but it just became uh, officially published, I believe. So uh, now over the years, um, after looking hard at deep sky surveys like from Hubble, it was estimated the observable universe held 100 to 200 billion galaxies. And that's a gargantuan number and sounds right to me. You know, it's a lot. Um, uh, but it turns out to be an underestimate. And oh, by the way, I did not know this, 10% of those uh are visible, and a whopping 90% need better telescopes if we're going to want to see them properly. So I just did not know that the number of, of uh, galaxies that we can infer or just barely detect, we really know next to nothing about them. Who knows what we're going to find out about them in the future. So how do they go from a little over 100 billion to 2 trillion? Well, first... Um, we need to talk about what the observable universe actually is. Steve, how much time do I have to answer that? Don't answer. I'll be succinct. The observable universe is the part of the universe close enough to have its light reach us since the Big Bang. Duh. That's pretty obvious. But now you may think since the universe is 13.8 billion years old, 13.77, that the radius of the universe would be something like 13.8 billion light years, right? But also been accelerating its expansion since that light left. So that doesn't work. So even if, you, if you're if you looking at the oldest light, 13.77 billion years old, um, the object that emitted that light has moved much, much farther away since then. Um, so the radius is not 13 point whatever billion light years. The radius is 45.34 billion light years or about um, – 91 billion light years across if diameter is more of your kind of thing. Um, and those numbers have actually been decreased a little bit. I think in the past few years, they were, they were a little bit higher. I think 0.7% higher, but they realized, uh, using the latest information, it's actually the observable universe is actually just a tiny bit smaller than we thought. Still over 90 billion light years across, maybe, you know, bigger than you, Probably imagine. The researchers came up with uh, this two trillion number by starting with what's called uh, pencil beam images. Now these are narrow surveys of ultra tiny patches of the sky. You, you've, you've heard astronomers like, see that tiny tiny little patch of sky about it, you know, a, a, whatever, a quarter of the width of the moon or whatever. Is like that's th- they survey these tiny tiny patches. Uh, you know, something like a millionth. Uh, the size of what, say, the Hubble could potentially survey. So it's so small. These are pencil, pencil beam images. Now, the pencil beam images are then turned into these 3D images by these uh, astronomers, which allows them to count the galaxies that existed during the many uh, discrete epochs of the universe. So that's what they did. 3D images going, you know, far back, then much farther back, then even farther back. And then they're comparing and counting and, you know, mathematically looking and manipulating all this stuff. So some of the things they found out, uh, were that most of the galaxies in the universe when it was young were low mass. So not many huge, you know, Andromeda Milky Way like galaxies way back then. There were low mass galaxies like the satellite galaxies in orbit around the Milky Way, in fact. Um, and in modern, in modern times, I guess if you could call it, uh, we have 10 times fewer, uh, low mass galaxies today, which means, of course, that there's been a lot of collisions and merging, uh, happening over the eons and eons. Those are some of the other, uh, incidental findings that they, that they made. Of course, the big finding was that the, when they did count all of them, uh, two trillion in the observable universe. So, uh, so the next big addition to this news item will probably be when the James Webb telescope is launched in 2018. Um, that telescope, uh, is going to be so intense. Uh, my, my, only, the only thing that scares me is that I believe it's going to be in an orbit that is inaccessible by astronauts. So if they get it wrong, like, like Hubble was, like, what was it? 81? When, when did Hubble go? No, Hubble not? went up 90,
0: 90,
2: 91. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, then they're going to be in deep trouble because they're not going to be able to, to, to have that famous repair mission like that. <laughs> that, so they that was better. I told they you. better get it right. But if they get it right, it will be able to take a serious looks at these low mass first galaxies that we can't quite make up, make out hardly at all right now. And who knows what weird stuff uh, they will discover. Perhaps, perhaps there's three trillion galaxies, but. We shall see. There was a fun
1: symmetry with the 100 billion number because you think, all right, a galaxy has 100 billion stars, and there's 100 billion galaxies. Right? Yeah, yeah. I was, hear yeah. you. Easy to remember. But now we got to we got to up that to two trillion. Yeah, but that's I'm okay. fine. I'm, I'm okay, okay with it. that. Yeah. <laughs> tri- tr- good with trillions. There's a trillion stars in the Andromeda galaxy.
4: All right, Jay. Who's that noisy time? All right. So last week I played this noisy. So tons of people wrote in. A lot of people absolutely knew what this is. They got it right. The very first person who guessed right named The Professor with with no name. Just beating out Marianne. Yeah, right? (laughs) So they said this week's Who's That Noisy is the Bohemian Rhapsody played by a hundred plus year old fairground organ. And that is correct. This is – this is Bohemian Rhapsody as it was played, or as it is now played on a hundred-year-old fairground pipe organ that has a real snare drum and a kick drum and a xylophone. Um, they use like these heavy type of paper that gets fed into it, like a player piano, and there's little you know shapes cut out on it that tell the machine what to do. So, congratulations to uh, to everyone that wrote in the correct answer. It's some there was people that wrote in like literally thirty seconds. In intervals, so like four or five mm-hmm. people were listening to the show at the same time. Uh, but the professor beat you out. And again, uh, that was sent in by a listener named Ben Bulls. And thanks, Ben. That was really cool. And you could see the video for that on YouTube as well. It something, uh, it's cool to look at. Very cool machine. Very large actual organ. Very cool. So this week's Noisy was sent in by a listener named Teet Sur- Ken I mean, people, seriously, you – making up your name so I can't pronounce it.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. All
4: right? That's not funny. So here, what the hell is this? So if you have any idea what the hell that was, Or if you heard anything cool this week, email me at and only at WTN at skepticsguide.org. Thank you, Jay.
1: Well, hey, guys. We have a great interview coming up with James Randi. So let's go to that interview now. Hey. Well, we are joined now by someone who literally does not need any introduction, James Randi. Or Randy. last
5: name. Randy. welcome back <laughs> to the SGU. Pardon me, I'm overcome with emotion here. I'm glad to be talking with you folks. Uh, it's been a while. Yeah. It has been a while. You know, My whole, month, my whole life has been 88 years of a while. I, I'm recovering from all kinds of good stuff lately, but I won't uh, get too into that. But you're doing
1: well. I mean, yeah, you're 88, you're still active, you're, you're busy. Sounds like things are going
5: well. I've had several friends live into their 90s, so what the heck? Well, how old is the oldest person now? 117. Wow. I don't know. I haven't been in touch with her lately. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, do you have any books currently in the works?
5: Oh yes, yes. I've got my 11th book is in manuscript form. I'm just making a few changes to it. This is retouching. If you think it's your last <laughs> book, you know, you go through it and. And, and put in commas and things like that forever. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be a huge book. I don't know how thick it's going to be, but it'll hold doors open, I can tell yeah. you that. Uh, it's called A Magician in the Laboratory. It's got some very interesting stuff in it uh, about all kinds of quackery that I've come upon in my life and um, how I, uh, in many cases, managed to uh, vanquish it temporarily because it never stays completely vanquished. Of course, it always bounces back. Yeah, you could expose
1: it and expose it, and it may dampen it temporarily. But people just don't get recycled. People recycle nonsense endlessly.
5: Yeah, it's like Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. I I, I, I said two dirty words. I'm very sorry. (laughs) We still have one day, maybe One day.
0: Yeah.
5: Yeah. And I'm going to make good use of it. I'm going to be up earlier in the morning and and live uh, the last day without Donald Trump. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to start politics with you folks, of course. But <laughs> I, I don't know whether you feel the way I do. I am just highly, uh, highly tuned up on the subject. And uh,
1: there's a lot to be skeptical of, certainly.
5: Oh yes, yes. Uh,
1: so, is, do we have a publication date on the book?
5: No. Uh, I've got it with two different publishers right now.
1: Well, usually if you already have books that have been published, it's it's not that difficult to get yeah. the next one. The first one's always the hardest, I understand.
5: Oh, so I'm told. So I'm told. Although I found it the easiest one because I just wrote down just about everything I knew and, and put the end. <laughs> <laughs> but and my books have been around for a while. I, you know, uh, I'm um, – I'm published in, I think, 11 different languages altogether. You speak 11 different languages? (laughs) I write in English and somebody else does that. Ah, ah,
1: That's easier. That's a lot easier.
5: I've heard from people who have said they've gone into bookstores. They say they'll see a kiosk sitting there with Isaac Asimov's books on one side and my books on the other side. And that's certainly flattering, to say the least.
0: Randy, your books are are timeless in a sense that, for example, I recently picked up Flim Flam and read it again. I I felt it was as fresh in 2016 as it was when it was first published, what, in the late 1980s? I I, don't—I really enjoy
5: that about your your works. And and by the way, you know, do do you folks know uh, what caused Isaac Asimov's passing? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. Um— Oh wow! I don't remember specifically what. What a disaster! It was AIDS. Whoa. Oh. And you, you can look up the history. I'm sure you can find it. To, to, as you know, you can find out just about anything if you tap into the uh, the internet. Isaac, uh, wow he he had some some heart problem, and he went off to the hospital, and uh, he was operated on, and quite successfully, it seems. But they gave them a blood transfusion, and it was in the about six-week uh, interval oh, when they oh, didn't shush. realize that blood supplies, uh, you know, generally available blood supplies to hospitals, could be infected with the AIDS virus. Shortly after that, they, they destroyed every cubic centimeter of blood that they had in their, their blood banks and started to uh, advertise for more blood, and they gave it uh, a test, of course, right away but uh he, uh he got age that way
3: yeah wow How he was unlucky. only
2: 72 oh that's horrible uh, fam- yeah, a-
0: arthur Ashe, and arthur ash the famous tennis I'm player Bart. died uh, the, the same same way of a transfusion and he contracted aids
1: yeah and his his family Asimov's family decided to keep it secret for about 10 years until after uh, his physicians died. I guess they didn't want to <laughs> give them a bad name. But yeah, that was just a, that was a very brief window where the blood supply was not secure. So just a bad timing, unfortunately. Uh, and he,
5: I know the last the last note I got from, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't know whether you know it or not, but he used to write postcards. He was very very uh, fond of postcards, and he would write and very interesting and informative postcards. I have a, a number of them, as a matter of fact. He wrote me a postcard when I. When I wrote to him, and um, oh, it's sort of hard to say, but he—he he just said on the postcard. He said, "I'm feeling rather poorly lately. Uh, I'll try to reply later." And uh, he died within a matter of a few days of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's oh, that, and you know, I—I I, I destroyed that postcard too. I, I just couldn't have it sitting around. It was—it it was too much for me. And uh, some people would. Would save it as the last memento of them, but it was so sad when I, when I read that. It, it's like when I heard Johnny Carson had died. Um, mm. It was I, I'd been in touch with uh, with John over over the years after his uh, retirement. He would write me from obscure places around the world, and um, my sister called me from Canada uh, one morning, earlier one morning, and she said, "Oh, did you hear that Johnny Carson died?" And it took the breath right out of me. Now, I've never had this happen before physically like this. It literally took my breath away. I just exhaled, and I was so shocked. I just told her I'd call her back. And uh, my office staff couldn't talk to me for the rest of the day. I, I just shut the door and stayed in the office. I felt so badly that I hadn't had a chance to say goodbye or anything like that. It was so, so sad. But John did it to himself. He smoked himself to death.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah. he You know, he used to smoke all the way through the program, and not many people know that. But uh, if you watch, uh, I've forgotten which particular episode it is, but there are a lot of uh, well videos of me with Johnny. <clears throat> up, and there's one of them. I, again, I wish I could think of which one it is. But if you look around, you'll find one of them. <laughs> where you will see his eyes going up uh, in, in a very strange way when the camera cuts to him. And what that was doing, that was when he was looking at the monitor to see whether he was on the monitor or I was on the monitor, you see. And if oh. I was on the monitor, I knew enough, because I'd been given a hint about it, that if if I got once got on the monitor and stayed on there, that he needed about 20 or 25 seconds to draw a couple more breaths of of nicotine. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could see the eyes going up and down and up and down. And finally, I thought, I better take mercy on him, you know? So I started talking. That's an interesting subject, John. And (laughs) and I started in on a, a bit of a tirade there, which gave him a chance. He had a cigarette on well, a special holder that the prop man had underneath his desk with a little <laughs> muffin fan. I don't know whether you've ever seen a muffin fan. It's a, it's a very small fan, oh, maybe five inches by five inches, a square fan, and it's absolutely silent. It works on AC, so there's no commutator in it. it doesn't make any noise at all. And it's used to be very silent, and it was very silent, and the prop man would have the smoke blowing out someplace else in the studio uh, just to hide it although the audience was always told at the beginning of the program mr carson will be smoking during the 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 show and there's always be a sort of a reaction from the audience. but please don't call any attention to it okay <laughs> and, and they all applaud and it was so sad to know that he had to break away just to take a couple of puffs he was mm. so heavily addicted
4: Hey, Randy, Randy, if you could go back and change something that happened during your career, you know, what would it be? Would you go after someone that you didn't go after? Would you, you know, change not the topic of one you of your did. books? Yeah. I'm curious, you know, what, what did you do that you'd like to redo?
5: There are a few foolish things I did as a youth, but maybe we shouldn't get into all of that.
3: <laughs>
5: <laughs> no, I think not, folks. Uh I only wish that I had been able to spend some time with Johnny at his home, and maybe I could have spent a few hours with him and tried to talk him out of the smoking thing, but I don't think it would have been possible. He was addicted for as both my parents were, and it eventually took them away too. Mm-hmm. And took them away, isn't that poetic? No, it killed them. Yeah. Yeah. The, the fact that tobacco is, is so, so well-supported as an industry, uh, to me, It's a crime, a crime against the population of the USA and of the world, because it it takes away so many lives every year. The number of deaths attributable to it, incredible. I I sort of wish I might have been able to do something about that.
1: No, yeah, you can't. I mean, you uh, you say that. I I do take credit for nagging both my parents out of smoking. Oh yes, Uh, although. It took me a long, long time, and then again, they did it because they wanted to do it, and who knows, you know, what would have happened. But I, I consistently nagged them for at least twenty years before they both quit.
5: Oh well, I'm, I'm glad that that was successful. Then, at what age did they quit?
1: Uh, about twenty years ago. So, yeah, I suspect that neither of them would be alive right now if they had continued smoking, because they, you know, they both have some degree of vascular disease. Uh, yeah,
3: my mom quit, but not without. Um, help. You know what I mean? She took Chantix to be able to quit because I just don't know if she could have done it on her own. And you know, I, yeah. And I think that it really for her was getting that first glimpse when she went to her physician and they showed her a chest X-ray and said, you don't have emphysema yet, but these alveoli, they don't look healthy. And it's like when you can really see the damage or see the effects on a a film, I think then it becomes much more real.
1: For some people, you know that does that that has like a one, two percent, three percent effect. That scared straight approach, mm. it, it really it doesn't have as much. It's not like everyone sees that and goes. Oh, that's it. I'm quitting. That's Most true. People yeah, don't. some
3: people smoke through their lung cancer. Yeah. 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 I I quit. I mean, I was I was a smoker for many years, and it was a very. It was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done is quit smoking um yeah i can I can fully attest to the fact that it, there's a lot of kind of cognitive dissonance when you're a smoker yeah
1: yeah for sure, sure. makes sense and we, we we lost Christopher Hitchens to that as well that and the drinking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and the, the drinking
0: alcohol. yeah oh my gosh, another demon
1: and he knew it he yep. said it so that you know that when he when he was writing essays about the process, which he did, he said that it's like the most. Uh, banal thing you can imagine. You know, I'm dying of the exact thing that you would expect me to die from as a lifelong drinker and smoker.
5: And, and I, I don't think I ever experienced Hitchens uh, that he wasn't uh, very tipsy and smoking yeah. heavily of, uh, I, that is, uh, smelling of, of tobacco mm-hmm. smoke. He uh, constantly added. But I, I must say that I have one funny picture of him. It, it's, Well, it's funny. I can see that. And he would probably be laughing if he heard me saying this. I have him standing in front of a huge sort of armored door in a warehouse. Uh, I've forgotten where we took it. I think it was backstage at one of the studios uh, someplace in Los Angeles. And there's a big big sign on the door saying, do not stand in front of this door. And he's Mm -hmm. standing in front of the door and looking straight out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> with a non-committal look on his face, but it, it was so typical of him. That yeah. He, he was—it was a wonderful character. Wonderful
4: character. Randy, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite trick, or like you know, do you have one that you're like, you know what? I'm freaking awesome at that trick.
5: <laughs> oh, I have a lot of those. Dude. I mean, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, the mentalism stuff is is what I. You see, that's easy to do at a at a lecture, and I think if you have a a big sheet of paper or something like that in front of you on a, on a tripod. You can do the mentalism stuff much more easily than struggling out of a straitjacket upside down. It That really disturbs the audience because you may fall on them, you know.
1: Yeah. Is there a mentalism mm-hmm. trick you could do with audio only on a podcast, or they always require some visual component?
5: Well, no, that's – I've never had that question before, I don't think. Damn you. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> My serenity here. Uh,
4: that was a great question, Jay.
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so uh, I guess that means the answer is no.
0: <laughs> all right, Randy, I, Today's here's a headline in today's news. I, I kid you not. This is today's headline. Declassified files reveal CIA carried out secret secret psychic experiments on Uri Geller and got him to predict an agent's drawings from the next room. So I guess they they recently just declassified a bunch of a bunch of documents. Here's the first comment from the reader. Here's the first comment in the comment section. He's a fraud. James Randi proved it years ago. Thank you.
2: I think oh, that, nice.
5: That it. says it. All. <laughs> awesome. But I, I sent them a, a note too saying. Uh, if that note came from the, uh, if that uh, quote came from the the workings of Targ and Putoff, the uh, two, uh, how do you spell assholes? T a r g a n d two fools. You know, Putoff. Uh, pardon me, Targ, not Putoff. off may have recovered from that. I, I doubt it, but he perhaps did. But uh, Targ has put out a book called something about the reality of ESP. I think it is. I've got it in one of the four thousand books in the room next to me at this very moment, uh, and um, he he just repeats stuff which I have debunked long ago about yeah. the Geller so-called tests. You know there were there were about I'd say five or six times as many tests done with Geller that were supposed to be definitive that were never published. They didn't publish them because, as they said, he wasn't feeling well or whatever. You know, they made excuses for him and they simply did not publish them. It's not a case of they published them and said something to the effect that he claimed that he wasn't uh, up to par. No, they didn't mention that. They simply never published them. And there were many of the tests that were designed, for for example, sealed envelopes. And they had a 100 sealed envelopes uh, in, in one particular episode, there was a separate drawing in each one of them. And Geller was allowed to handle all the envelopes together and, and just put them aside. They were all sealed and unmarked and such, not numbered or anything. And then he would put them aside, and he'd say, there's a picture of something like an automobile in there with, with four wheels That's not unlikely that there would be something like that. And he was allowed to make declarations like that. And then they studiously went through the whole bunch of them, opened them all up and said, here's one here. In other words, he's not taking an envelope and telling them what's in the envelope, which would be a good test, you see. Mm -hmm. No, he's, he's taking all of the envelopes and guessing that these drawings might be among these envelopes. Uh, what an incredible ineptitude for doing tests! That's not a test at all. They were looking to confirm what they wanted to believe. Yeah, they needed confirmation because, after all, they you know they got something like twenty million dollars out of the government just for the Uri Geller test. As a matter of fact, just an incredible sum. And Geller is, is now selling. Are you ready? A set of I believe it's six. Uh, CDs or DVDs I guess I don't know uh, he's now selling a bunch of them and I got one review of these Fellow sent me he said it's all him talking about himself and repeating himself on each one of the CDs with the same material over and over and over again but he advertised it as Geller finally comes clean you see to admit to, to everybody what he's been doing all over. that's not what was in there at all uh, incredible that guy's—he's moved back to Israel. I didn't know whether you knew that or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's had a, quite a career. That guy, uh, his career in many ways sort of ran parallel to yours, in that you know you would debunk him, and he would make up some new shit, and then you would debunk him. But as you say, it's it's incredible how little changes over time. I remember once I picked up a book that was discussing UFO claims. And, and then at, I I didn't realize until after I bought the book that it was like 35 years old. So I read it anyway and I was amazed at how similar the claims were. It's like that they're saying the same shit 35 years ago that they're still saying like this is just around the corner and the government's just about to release this and whatever. And so it sounds like you're telling me that it's the same thing, like the same things you debunked 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. They're just recycling these same claims. Is there anything that you that uh, you think has really changed about the skeptical movement or the kinds of pseudoscientific claims that are out there? It's it, it's hard
5: to say. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the flavor the flavor has changed, and I think the flavor has changed for the better. I think that people are are somewhat more critical now. They're they're not getting away with as much as uh, as they used to. They could say so there was a time when they can get almost anything uh, published uh, and and paid attention to, but I think we're uh, we're doing a little better in that respect.
1: Well, that's good to hear. All right. Well, Randy, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been really great. Oh, well, great
5: pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Thanks, Randy. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week: The Great Courses.
0: As you know, we love to stay informed and learn as much as possible, both us as hosts and you as listeners. And we enjoy listening to the courses on The Great Courses Plus.
3: You know, they've got over 8,000 lectures to choose from. They're all presented by experts in their respective fields, things like psychology, physics, astronomy, even photography. And um, we just recently watched The Intelligent Brain, which is a really cool lecture that explores the research behind, you know, the intelligence quotient, the validity of IQ testing, what we've learned through recent improvements in brain imaging technology, and what the future holds. Uh,
4: You can get a full month free by going to our special SGU URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics.
1: All right, guys, let's get back to the show.
3: It's time for Science or Fiction.
1: Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Did I tell you that two of them are real and one is fake? Yeah, that's And how you it gotta is, tell right? me which one? Yeah. Right. It's only the 602nd show. We've done this <laughs> a few times. All right. We have a theme this week. A very interesting theme. It ready for the be theme? Good. The theme is global warming. All right. E- how much do you guys Burr. actually know? Quite a bit about global warming. E- now. It's real. Um, I'm gonna give you, as an introduction to this topic, The fact that it was the inspiration for me choosing this topic. Mm -hmm. As of today, uh, we're recording, 2016 is officially the warmest global year on record. Yep. Since we've been keeping records since 1880. But let's see what else you know about Mm -hmm. global warming. You Mm -hmm. ready? Not cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Item number one. Carl Sagan was the first scientist to publicly warn about the possibility of man-made global warming from greenhouse gas emissions in a 1980 essay. Item number two, the 15 hottest years on record since 1880 have all been since 1998. And just to clarify, just for brevity, I said since 1998, but it's 1998 and later, just so there's no confusion. And item number three climate models show that even if CO2 emissions were stopped entirely, global temperatures would continue to rise for at least a century. Evan, I believe you are due to go first.
0: I recall Carl Sagan publicly warning about man-made global warming. That is a absolute fact. But in a 1980 essay, I don't know about that. um, I think when he warned about it, it was prior to that because he had done studies concerning Venus and made a correlation between how the um, greenhouse gases trapped in Venus causes caused that planet's temperature to rise to dramatic levels. So I don't think it was the 1980 essay. I, I'm leaning towards that one being the fiction. But the other two, 15 Hottest Years on Record Since 1880, all since
2: 1998.
0: That's uh, wow. That's a, most of the last what, 18 years, 19 years. So uh, I'm not sure. One's I think going to turn out to be right. And then the last one, the climate models show even if the emissions were stopped entirely, that global temperatures would continue to rise for at least a century. I have a sad feeling that that one's going to turn out to be science, unfortunately, as well. Well, then I'm going to stick with my gut. I think it's the Carl Sagan one. I I think he had warned about it uh, much sooner than
2: 1980. Okay, Bob. Oof. Yeah, these are all kind of on the edge. Oh, yeah. So you did a good job here. Um, Yeah, I remember Sagan kind of mentioning it as well. The first scientist. Ooh, I'm trying to remember. Ah, Cosmos... Uh, with Neil deGrasse Tyson, damn um, the fifty, the number two, the fifteen hottest years. Um, for some reason, that one I'm thinking fifteen, yeah, but the number ten is kind of ten or twelve, is kind of sticking in my head. Um, so that's close, but and would you, you know, would you change it from ten or twelve to fifteen? Maybe because that's still that's a significant, well, you know, kind of a big jump in a way. You could argue. And then the, the, the number three, the climate models, uh, taking a century, even if even if CO2 emissions are stopped. A century seems a little big. Is uh, 50 years or 70? I'll go with um, number two, 15 hottest years since 1880.
3: Okay, Kara? I'm going to say that uh, I'm almost 100% certain that the 15 hottest years on record have been since 1998. I think that one's the most true. The one that – well, I mean two of them are ax- – Are both true, but that one sticks out to me as the most true. So I'm going to say that that one's definitely science. Uh, The two that are getting me are number one and number three. Um, Climate models show that even if CO2 emissions were stopped entirely, global temperatures would continue to rise. That part's true. (laughs) That I know, I think it's called like dedicated warming or something like that. I don't know how long they would continue to rise. So I think we're looking at over a degree Celsius, even if we completely cut off CO two emissions. If I remember, Sounds maybe it's right, yeah. almost two degrees Celsius. But I don't. A century does sound like a long time. And then the other one, Carl Sagan was the first scientist. That's the word that's getting me to publicly warn about the possibility of man made global warming from greenhouse gas. Nineteen eighty. That's late as hell. I think there were people warning about this during the industrial revolution i do think there were individual scientists who knew very early on that what we were doing was directly contributing to the earth's climate and i think they knew about greenhouse gases even if it wasn't in the 1800s at least by like the 40s or the 50s or the, the 60s so something about this one i'm going to be kind of annoyed if this one is true because it was the first scientist and not the first like i don't know coal miner researcher so i think i'm going to go with this cuz i don't think st- Steve would trick us that way. Something tells me this happened way sooner than 1980. That's the fiction.
1: And Jay.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Carl Sagan was the first scientist. I mean, I think the tricky word here is to publicly warn. I thought when uh, Al Gore did his uh, An Inconvenient Truth, I thought he was talking about how they knew about this for a long time, you know, like it was like 60s, 70s or earlier. It's just, you know, the idea, Carl Sagan is publicly warning about it. Like, you know, that's, that's, that's the tricky part. How public does it have to be to be considered public? The 15 hottest years on record since 1880 have been since 1998. Yeah. I'd say, of course. This last one here, the climate models show uh, CO2 emissions have stopped now entirely. So we're like, what? Okay. Absolutely no more CO2 emissions, which is impossible. Um, w- would temperatures still rise? Yes, and how long would it take for things to balance out? I mean, when when you start down this train, it, it's like a train. It you know you stop the steam from pushing the wheels to keep going, and that train because of the momentum is going to keep going for a long time. So to st- slow down and stop and actually reverse global warming, I, I mean, I guess maybe even more than a century it could be two, you know, could be a couple of hundred years. I would think so. That one is definitely science. I mean, this the, the freaking carbon. The carbon is a bitch to get rid of. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's such a <laughs> such a tricky mofo.
3: Carbon is a tricky. Carbon's mofo. Carbon's a bitch. Life's
4: a bitch. I get it. I don't know. The only one that I just don't know about is this Carl Sagan thing. So, Kara, you picked that one, huh?
3: Mm-hmm. But I was wrong last week. But I was right the week before. No, I wasn't well, there the week before. Well, you were by by <laughs> proxy. By <default. laughs> yeah.
4: yeah, I just don't think Carl was the first. I don't. I'm going to say that was a fake.
1: Okay. All
4: right.
1: So you Move. all agree on number three, so we'll start there. Climate models mm-hmm. show that even if CO2 emissions were stopped entirely, global temperatures would continue to rise for at least a century. you all think that one is science, and that one is, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, science. Okay. Yeah. yeah,
0: unfortunately.
3: And Flash. is is that because terrible. of the – it's because of the ocean, right?
1: Yeah, it's largely because of the ocean. It's called thermal inertia. Mm. Uh, the system doesn't react immediately. There's a delay, right? In the uh, the CO2 and when the temperatures sort of reach their new equilibrium, and you know the models show that it would be at least a century. It could be centuries oh before wow. the warming stops happening. Uh, so that yeah, that's if we magically didn't release another molecule of CO2 into the atmosphere. Which of course so, what is, about not magical
2: happening. technology, or like magical technology in a sense, uh, like G, some sort of geoengineering, nano, some amazing mature nanotechnology?
1: Yeah, I mean, we'd have to be like be actually be removing CO two from the atmosphere. Right. You know what I mean?
2: We have to. That, that's uh, so going to happen. We have to do. Yeah, it. Yeah, it is.
3: It's good. But, you know, but it might not happen soon enough. That's the problem. Uh, yeah, that's it. it. All good things will happened. happen. You're right,
1: Kara. The, the big question is, will it be soon enough? Mm-hmm. How much damage is going to be done? Until you know we get things back under control, that's the question. Are any of you guys, by the way, watching uh, Incorporated? No. Mm-hmm.
2: no, no. What is uh, it? It's,
1: it's good. It's a good show. It's a it's a new series. It takes place, I think, in like the twenty eighties. Around then, and it's oh, I heard about that. It's after climate change has wrecked the world. Oh,
0: there are climate that-
1: refugees and like. Breadbasket of America is now a desert. You know, It's not implausible, actually. It's, like a, it's, it's a, picture, a new
3: post-apocalyptic kind of – Yeah.
1: It's post-apocalyptic, but basically corporations take over.
3: But that's oh. – I think it's such a smart device because, you know, more people are going to be reached through storytelling on television than through facts and figures. Unfortunately, um, that's true. Yeah, and if it really – if we can imagine what life would be like and it's really horrible, it might actually affect yeah. some people.
1: I mean it's a worst-case scenario, but it's not out of the range of possibility. Mm-hmm. Okay, Let's go back to number one. Carl Sagan was the first scientist you publicly warn about the possibility of man-made global warming from greenhouse gas emissions in a 1980 essay. Jay Evan and Kara think this one is the fiction. Bob you think this one is science
4: and so
3: this
1: are you saying one, Carl wrote his essay, Steve He wrote his essay <laughs> this one is. <laughs> The fiction. This is oh the fiction. my God,
4: Kara.
3: Yay. I so, knew uh, it. So, was it that Carl Sagan Thanks, said it sooner? No, happened. Carl what? Sagan. wasn't even Carl Sagan
1: did write his <laughs> big carbon emissions are going to cause global warming essay in 1980. And that was published at that time in Cosmos, actually. But, I but I other people had clearly. warned previously. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. the first person who do you think was the first person to warn about climate, uh, man made well, Global warming. I mean, like, I don't, Red, like, so I don't remember Wegener the guy's name, but there, there was <laughs>
4: something in the seventies, right, Steve? No, there was some you know, type well, of maybe, maybe sooner.
1: That. He basically, So the guy's name was Svante August Arrhenius. Oh, I don't right. know. So right. you asked he us was to guess that a <laughs> Swedish scientist who won a Nobel Prize, actually, he's a Nobel laureate, and then oh. became the director of the Nobel Institute. He was a physicist who became a chemist, and basically. Uh, developed physical chemistry and he hmm. figured out I mean we already knew that CO2 was a greenhouse gas at that point but he did the calculation of how much CO2 we were releasing into the atmosphere and said yeah you know what this is enough that it can actually change the climate and if we continue to pour CO2 into the atmosphere it will warm the earth so he was the first one to publicly warn about that and we are going back to like he worked this out in 1896 yeah and his first public warnings about that were like right after 1900.
3: Yeah, it's like the Industrial Revolution. Like right when we were at the peak, there were whistleblowers, weren't there?
1: Right, but he was the first one to sort to work it out, to actually cool. do the math and to say, yes, we're we're burning fossil fuels, releases CO2, and that will cause greenhouse gas effect. And that is enough. What we were doing is enough to that it will progressively cause warming of the climate. And he was correct. So he was the first one to put it all together.
3: It's not just like, hey, guys, we need to be careful because bad stuff could happen. He was like, bad stuff is going to happen, yeah, and I'll tell you exactly, why.
1: exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. So, But Carl Sagan did warn about it, just he wasn't the first one or the first scientist. I thought it was interesting how far back it went. And I was trying to decide, mm-hmm. you know, if, do I include this as the science, like what you guys have believed, if I said like 1903 or whatever, for the first guy to warn about it?
0: I don't know. Wow, yeah. Hard I mean, to yeah. know in hindsight.
1: So I, I know. charge out those so Those are the calculations I have to make sometimes. All right. This means that the 15 hottest years on record since 1880 have all been since 1998, and that is science. Again, yeah. more horrific. And the only now. reason why it's not 15 out of 15 is because 1998 was an anomalously warm year. So that's stuck. That's like number six now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little peak there because of an El Nino year. It was like really peaked up. Other, than, if it were for that anomalous year, it would be pretty consistently. You know that the, the more recent years are the hottest ones. So 2014 was the hottest year on record. Then it was beat out by 2015, and now it was beat out by 2016, and not by a small margin. Uh, you know, by a by a, you know relatively significant margin. So. So the problem uh, but, is getting worse yeah. faster. Now the reason why the last three years have been the warmest on record is because of a combination of the man-made global warming is happening, you know, in the background, but also there's the El Nino-La Nina cycle. So when those two things line up, then you then you get you'll get a pulse of years breaking records. So. Uh, This was like the last of the El Nino cycle. Next year, I think we're back to a La Nina cycle, which is more cooler. So we may not have record-breaking years for a couple of years. Again, this is just the up-and-down background trend that happens, You know, just normal fluctuation. But that up-and-down trend, that up-and-down fluctuation is trending up over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
3: and it's like – and when you follow the news really closely, I mean over the course of 2015 or 2016, you would get – you would see the articles. August, hottest month on record. Yeah. September, hottest month. It's like every month is the hottest August ever. And every and you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah, they kind of so knew many this many was trends. coming early yeah. on.
1: Yeah, this is going to happen. So, and apparently New England uh, is one of the warmest parts of the world in terms of uh, being average, above its average temps. temperature. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it's the, so yeah, this is global warming. You're taking average temperatures. Actually, the U.S. overall is not as warming as much as the the global average, but New England is warming more. So, Oof. but whatever, you could you could mm. look at all different parts of the world and some are more, some are less, you know, whatever. But you have to take the overall average to uh, to determine what the global warming is. So, yeah, I mean, there's just the trend is so undeniable at this point. You know, the idea that there's a pause, wrong. There wasn't a pause you know this is not a fluctuation there's there's no other cycle explaining this this and you know it's such a stark upward trend over such a short period of time i mean you you have to be engaged in motivated reasoning to mm-hmm. uh to that's deny it's that it yep, that's why yeah it's but then denial. they then they'll move back to okay the planet's warming but it's not being caused by man-made activity. Like, okay, it's being caused by man-made activity, but the solutions that are being offered suck and there's really nothing we can do about it, so just don't worry about it. Or whatever. Anything <laughs> but let's do something about it, right? You'll Never go yeah. all the way to the conclusion of, yeah, there may be some reasonable, even conservative things that we can do that, that could mitigate you know, the worst of, of global warming. But the, the most frightening thing to me is that it's already too late. Right. Absolutely. That's what Michael Mann said. Yeah. yeah, And a lot of people think that. Yeah. It may already be, you know, it's never too late to do something, but it may be too late to avoid some pretty bad shit. You know, there's even if we, again, even if we stopped releasing CO2, we may still get to the point where people are going to be displaced from coastal cities and food production could be adversely affected. And Species are going to go extinct. I mean you hear all kinds of dire predictions about how many species are going to go extinct. Yeah,
3: and they already have been. I think what's the saddest part of this whole thing is that the arbiters of what we should be doing are often the richest and most protected from the deleterious effects of climate change. So you've got the poorest people who have no control over policy who are already flooded out of their homes. And then you've got those of us in the middle of the United States who don't really feel the effects except, oh, it's kind of warm. It's kind of warm. It's weird.
4: Oh, well. Yeah. Oh,
3: is it great we don't have bad snowstorms anymore? Yeah, it's like we just don't see what's happening in front of our faces. It's All right, here's a good
1: question. Manner. When was the last time there was a coldest year on record? Ooh.
4: And that's oh, since wow. 1880? Oh, recent, since recent. 1880. Since 1880. Recently. Yeah, I would say within the last 10 years. No, oh, but no well, no, no. well guys –
2: well, climate change is not just, you know, that summers are going to get hotter. It's also it's more extremes of, that's of yeah. Of, it's of true. Weather. But he said that's the true.
3: coldest year. He didn't Was it say the, year the coldest. That, that, that well,
0: volcano exploded and it snowed in August in the eighteen hundreds. No. I felt.
3: I feel like it's probably like nineteen thirteen or maybe close. nineteen very really? close Nineteen eleven.
1: 1911. 1911.
2: Oh, okay. Wow, close.
3: Was
1: okay. the last coldest year on record? Oof. <laughs> that tells you something too. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just fluctuations. We're not just seeing, you know, Statistically, the world is warming. That's the only real. Meanwhile, China is planning on building a coal-fired power plant every week for the next ten years. Oh, great! Wow. <laughs> yep. <Ew. laughs> there you, there you all then. So that's uh, that's a problem. I mean, they'll just move yeah, away from their coasts. I we guess. honestly, I really do think we need to move aggressively towards wind, solar, and nuclear. I don't yep. think we're going to do it without nuclear. Frankly, again, maybe eventually, but since the clock is ticking, since time does matter, I think if we're going to generate enough electricity that, you know, on demand to really meet the baseload needs of our infrastructure, we're mm-hmm. going to have to we're going to have to use nuclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means I think we really need to be investing in really you know progressing that technology so that we could burn cleaner and safer and burn the waste of older. Plants. And at this point, really, the biggest thing I think that is missed is the externalized cost. Because whenever you say things like that, people are like, well, nuclear is expensive, especially if you had it be safer, et cetera, it would be cost too much money. It's like, not; it doesn't cost too much money if you consider all the externalized costs of burning fossil fuel. Yeah. And it's only going to get greater. Everything Mm -hmm. is more cost effective than burning fossil fuel if you include all the costs. That global warming are right. going to cause in addition to just the health cost of pollution you know that's a hundred billion dollars a year you know yeah. so there's a tremendous amount of money that we could save if we weren't burning fossil fuel, and yeah. that money should be invested upfront in order to promote these you know alternative uh, energy sources, including, in my opinion, nuclear. I know right. that's a bit controversial, but I think scientists are coming down on the side of yes, we need to have nuclear in the in the equation. I think so uh, too. Yeah,
3: as long as a company can make money doing what they do um, in the fossil fuel industry, and they only have to worry about the costs in their fiscal year, they're never going to be calculating these these you know global it, costs. Yeah,
1: the externalized costs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I, you know, one thing I don't do myself is to get judgmental about what are the best solutions because I don't know. Uh, that's, you know, that's a very complicated political, mm-hmm. social, you know, economic question. Uh, I think experimenting is fine. I do think that just broad brushstroke, we should uh, look for the win wins. You know, mm-hmm. not, rather than asking people to make sacrifices, we say, hey, how would you like to have a cheap, you know, clean energy source that, you know, doesn't uh, cause pollution, and that's you know whatever. It's great for everybody. Like LED bulbs, right? That's everyone wins. You you save money, we burn less electricity. It's a win-win, right? You right. know, so we really need to focus right. on on those as many of those as possible. But yeah, but the big costs, the big costs are like infrastructure, energy production, and that requires planning.
3: It does, and it requires yeah, it requires making hard decisions about things like where our our investments are you know yeah. it it requires taking absolutely. away subsidy we should not be subsidizing things that are bad for the planet and we do yeah That's, and I, I do mean, think and it's, it's, it's absolutely
1: the, the global warming denial of course is mainly on the political right but mm-hmm. the one thing that the political left you know that that one thing that they're doing, which I feel is kind of productive, is opposing nuclear. Like in the U.S., opposing Yucca Mountain. You know what? Approve Yucca Mountain already. And I would love to see, like, the Democrats say to the Republicans, "All right, we'll make you a deal. We will be full core press for nuclear if you just, you know, sign off on uh, some reasonable measures to combat global warming and promote nuclear, uh, promote solar and wind, et cetera." You know, mm-hmm. just meet in the middle with some reasonable ideas that are, that would help rather than, you know, everybody taking their ball and going home and nothing gets done and then we're just stuck. And again, it, it will all sort itself out eventually, but it, that's not the question. The question is when, how long is it going to take and how much damage yeah. is going to happen yeah. in the meantime?
3: And will we still be here?
0: <laughs> right. Well, <yeah. laughs>
3: will we be involved in that sorting? All right. Evan, give us
0: a quote. Even scientists are not immune from the perceptual distortions to which we are all subjected. Oh, yes, very, very, very well said, Massimo Polidoro. And he wrote Massimo. that in a recent Massimo <laughs> wrote that in a very recent blog posting of his, which uh, translates from Italian. So I hope I did a fair job of of translating that, Massimo. Uh, Massimo, of course, a friend of the SGU, has been on several times. We've interviewed him. Interviewed him. He's he's from Italy. He's a psychologist, writer, journalist, television personality, co-founder and executive director of the Italian Committee for the Investigation of Claims of Pseudoscience.
1: And a preternaturally nice guy. Like the nicest guy in the skeptical movement.
0: Oh, he makes everyone else look like a jerk. (laughs) 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 It's true. It's true. He He is extremely kind. And mm-hmm. a, a real uh, a real hero and champion of the skeptical movement. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I continue to offer up quotes each week from people in the skeptical movement from around the world who are helping make
1: the world a little bit of more rational place. We hope so, anyway. All right. Thank you, Evan. Thank you all for joining me this week. You got it, Steve. Steve? Sure. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.